The year is 1991. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. year the podcast and reading club where we go through marvel comics from its origins to today i'm debusing founder and editor-in-chief of comicbookherald.com this is 1991 part six and today we are going to be covering all x-men comics in 1991 surprise surprise not something we've ever done before we're going to be talking about the mirror island saga we're going to be talking about x-men number one to number three the best-selling comics of all time and X Factor number 71 to 73. Today I am excited to be joined by an individual who I like to I like to refer to as well, I don't want to say a par I don't want to say a parasite. That that seems weird, right? I feel like we're getting <laughs> yeah. off on the wrong foot. He yep. is he is the parasite pushing me into a coma. It's it's nope, it's like a nope, symbiotic relationship better. where you get no benefit. That's that's the it's a one sided symbiotic. You know that makes me that makes me think too. Like what? Oh no! I, I answered my own question. I was gonna say what does a clownfish bring to the sea anemone? Right? It's like sea anemone provides the clownfish all that protection in the ocean. But mm. what is the clownfish bringing? And I suppose maybe for the sea anemone, the clownfish is bringing it food. I sp- that's probably that. So he's the here's we're, here's what I meant to say. He's the sea yeah, anemone we're, we're to my clownfish. Okay, Zach yeah. Dean, how's it going, Zach? Oh, thank you. Oh, you got there. Got hey, there. Dave. <laughs> good. To, glad to glad to be on the show. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, no, it, I said we're going to cover X Men comics. We're actually going to be talking about the fact that um, I watched Finding Nemo again, <laughs> and it's top <laughs> yeah, of mind. Yeah, it's like it's a very specific, uh, specific yeah, one to bring up. Yep. Nope. That's yeah, all I mean, you have today. you have Venom and Eddie Brock right there, but you went for uh, <laughs> clownfish and CNN. The real. The real. It, here's the thing: Finding Nemo. I think it's a little overrated, but better movie than the first Venom, which I which I thought was fun, which I thought was fun, but Finding Nemo oh, is a better Finding story Nemo. of symbiosis. I think Finding Nemo is better Venom. Um not not a controversial take. All right, so so we're, Pixar is, takes aside, fourth, let's talk X-Men. Let's talk where we are in 91. episode covering all mutants for 1991. <laughs> that's that's wild. Um I mean, are you going to are continue? you in any way surprised or do you feel like oh surely there surely we should be reading other things? Like does it feel inappropriate? That it's that no, no. Heavy. I mean, it, you know, we're covering Marvel history, and this is the era where you are getting this explosion of vo- like the volume is just uh, out of control. So you know, it, it makes sense. Um, there's there's tons of stuff going on, and it's not like it's just like all uh, unimportant crap. You know, like a lot of this is like still relevant. People still talk about this stuff. It's still trickling down into uh, you know storylines today. So it's, For sure. you know, it's not yeah. it's not like the whatever's happening in Fantastic Four right now where. You know who knows, and it's not going to actually have any impact on like long-term continuity. No, these um, are these are big comics, yeah. and these are big moments, and it's something. Th- this episode in particular is obviously yes. something we've been building to yeah. for a while now, which is the official end of all things Claremont. Right? We've been yeah. on this sort of 15, 16 year journey, and through the Muir Island saga and through X Men number one to three, we see the official end of Chris Claremont's time on X Men. We see the official takeover 
of Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, you know, kind of the image guys for a time here. And then, but then also we see creative transformation, creative turnover with Peter David and Larry Stroman taking over X Factor, which is which is honestly very interesting in and of itself. But let's start at the top. Let's start with the Muir Island Saga. So the Muir Island Saga is a crossover between Uncanny X-Men issues 278 to 280 and X-Factor 69 to 70. All right, mm-hmm. a couple, you know, kind of a, a, a creative unit change-ups here. As we head into this, Uncanny X-Men, the first two issues written mm-hmm. by Chris Claremont, but even already at this stage, and one is, uh, pen, or I think, pencil by Paul Smith here, so he comes back. But even at this stage, if you read Uncanny X-Men through this era uh, and the issues building up to this, which I would argue is probably the most essential it's ever been in terms of understanding what the heck is happening in the Muir Island saga. I think I we throw you into this in the My Marvelous Year Club to get the curated list of the best comics and the most essential stories, but the build and understanding what's going on in the X-Men universe to this point is so essential that like I think reading it on its own is it's a recipe for for failure. It's it's just not going to be You mean good this that way. I guarantee this it. saga specifically you're saying would be too complicated without that? Well, let me tell you, Zach. Let me ask you then, I guess, instead. What was your reaction? So, as someone who did not read it, the X-Men comics leading into this, yeah. what was your... I don't think you... That's what I'm saying. I think I'm sure you understood the words before you. I'm positive you lacked a lot of context building to this point. What did you Little think? things here and there, but no, I, I think, like, more or less, like, I had all the building blocks to put this together. Um, no, I. but, like, this feels like a somewhat of a... a soft reset this this saga right like getting professor x back we're starting up x-men number one where like the og team from the the 60s is regathering as the x-men they're being pulled out of x-force and again like professor x has not been around for i don't know how long has he been gone since since 1985 really like since 200 the trial of magneto which is we have not had the traditional you know the fox x-men cartoon ideal of the x-men for a long time and this is the beginning of that team that's the kind of like platonic ideal in people's head which is like the original group plus um storm wolverine gambit and jubilee am, am i forgetting anyone um, uh forge um you, you have some oh, yeah. players here and sure. there but it, it actually i forgot how heavily forge is invested yeah, in this, uh, at this stage lot, yeah. but no you're right like this is 1991 is the year of regenesis it is the year of resetting the X-Men franchise, and it's kind of that, you know, the, that tagline that publishers like to use even today, like back to basics, you know, kind of like getting back to what made the X-Men the X-Men. And I will say after five, six years of the X-Men on that build to Inferno and then just kind of the last couple years of just sort of roaming the wilderness and like what mm-hmm. even is the X-Men, at the, you know, for a while there, it's like, yeah, it, it actually is kind of due. Um, and by the time we get to X-Men number one to number three, it's actually really nice to see Jim Lee doing his career best work on all the characters together again playing. But we'll, we'll talk about that. Yep. But we got to talk Muir Island Saga first because there's one giant plot thread that Claremont had to tackle in his way before we could get to X-Men number one, before we could get to that reset, before we could get to the end of the era. And that is the lingering threat of the Shadow King, which has been a presence in X-Books very heavily over the last couple of years. We see Shadow King here not... So Shadow King is a psionic entity, evil, malicious entity, that we see in Uncanny X-Men in in one of the better early 
Claremont and Dave Cockrum issues. I, I think it's Cockrum at least. Um, it's, a, it's 117 or 118 around there where the Shadow King is in the host body of a Maul Farouk, right? And I they it was have burn. a burn. Psych- Are you sure that's that's not a burn? It What's is a burn. It is burn. It's a it's a Claremont burn issue. That is burn on that because okay. I remember really liking the art. <laughs> Yeah, no, no it's it's a really good comic, <laughs> absolutely. Cockroach, and we see yeah. Professor X showdown with the Maul Farouk um, mm-hmm. on the astral plane. We see uh, Storm as a young, uh, you know, kind of like uh, thief in Egypt trying to get by, and Maul Farouk's clutch is there. So this is a entity we've been familiar with, but we haven't really seen them too heavily like in actual Claremont X-Men, aside from that major flashback. And what we see in the present day is that the Shadow King has moved on from Farouk. He has now taken over... Uh, or it has now taken over uh, Jacob Rise, a FBI agent, uh, a government liaison, yeah, some sort of yeah, yeah. governmental position of Someone power, the or they're like yeah. second in command to Val Cooper, who is um, who becomes an increasing. She's been in a position she, of like she, leading Freedom Force, and she's the what is it, the governmental mutant liaison, something like that. Yeah, she didn't really mean too much to me until this, and then specifically X Factor. She gets uh, a the, she gets a much bigger role in X Factor. She becomes X-Factor. like okay, now I have a grip on this character, and she's not one of like the kind of <laughs> Claremont does have a thing where it's like the, these characters might matter, but they all have um, somewhat like generic, just American sounding names, and there's just like a, it seems like a assortment of random government officials that kind of filter through his his comics. So uh, for it, it's often hard to know like wow, which one is this? Is this one going to become important? Or not, and uh, yeah, she does eventually. Many of, I mean, many of his support. It's one of the things I like about Claremont is many of his supporting characters. They might have years of just being very, very minor and supporting in the background, and, and then the, all of a sudden, yeah. Val Cooper's like a name you need to know. Yeah, I, I do yeah, enjoy exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but all that is to say, this the Shadow King, his presence is growing, his control is growing. Professor X isn't even on Earth to stop him for most of this. And when we get to the Muir Island saga, what we've seen happening in the pages of X Men building to this point is we've seen certain characters, particularly Moira McTaggart, acting out of character, acting unlike themselves. In Moira's case, she starts wearing incredible lightning bolt earrings. She starts dressing very provocatively. She starts making out hard with Banshee. He's just, like, completely baffled. He's like, yeah, we've seen, listen, we've seen this, this is enjoyable <laughs> for a minute, but I'm confused. I don't know what's happening. Um, we we and, got hints uh, of this back in, like, New Mutants when she came Mm-hmm. Uh, really aggressively for Rain Wil- Rain Wilson <laughs> for Rain Wilson from the office. Um, mm-hmm. You know she she adopted Dwight. Um, no for uh, for Rain uh, Wolfsbane, and she was like kind of a new personality. So this has been like lingering in the background of Claremont stuff for a while. And, uh, and, it's and gone. I, I like that you listed basically like yeah she got super sexy and not that she's uh, hosting like one on one gladiatorial battles. To, you know to like. Well, that's, the but that's the thing, though. That's what the build up until this point had been. <laughs> yeah. Had just yeah. been like, ooh, Myra's acting sexy. Something's wrong. <laughs> but now now what we actually see is as we get to Muir Island, there's actually now an, an effect of all these mutants gathering there, and Moira is hosting gladiatorial combat where even mutants like Rogue, who we see in the build to this, like hanging out with Magneto in the Savage Land and some really good, uh, some good Gene Lee issues. But um, even Rogue is there, and she's like, I don't know why I'm enjoying fighting so much, but I'm loving it. Like, I, I, I could have hurt strong guy. And, like, so clearly, yeah. like, the X-Men here are sort of being manipulated emotionally, being manipulated psionically, and this yeah. is all part of the Shadow King's grand plot to basically drop a Jack Kirby hate bomb the world over um, and exacerbate 
all of the fears and hatreds and prejudices that run worldwide. And that is his grand plan is basically basically a showcase for hate to bring that to the forefront and just sort of let everyone destroy themselves. I'm not sure what he's looking for beyond that, uh, but that's kind of what he's doing here, on, and it all starts on Mirror Island. Yeah, and so th- it's five issues bouncing back and forth between Uncanny X-Men and X-Factor. And, uh, and you've got, like, the original X-Factor is um, split off from the team, and it, it's been a little bit since I've read this. So, like, it, it becomes, it, in my head, it's a little mixed up who is under control and who's not. Um, but F- Forge is instrumental in, like, breaking people free. He comes up with some kind of, like, you know, neurotransmitter unshackler <laughs> or something, some, you know, yeah. random science. And he's, like, uh, basically freeing the, uh, the mutants who are under this power one at a time. And uh, and this, this all wraps up and, like, ends with Legion, um, Xavier's son, being, like, the final mutant that the Shadow King has under his control. And Legion is an incredibly powerful psychic. And uh, they have this huge battle. An explosion kind of takes off, blows up most most of the island. And, uh, and we get this nice... I, I think that's the end of it. How did they actually defeat Shadow King? Do you remember? So, uh, before we get to that, I do okay. want to say that... So yes, you have some mutants who are as yet unaffected by the Shadow King's mm-hmm. influence. Those are mostly the mutants of Uncanny X-Men, and like you said, the original X-Factor, the original five. The Uncanny X-Men mutants are mostly unaffected because in the story leading up to this, <clears throat> which is a, a Jim Lee Center joint, that is them going to Shi'ar space, and that is them br- basically bringing back Professor X. Okay, yeah. So during that story, it's revealed that Professor X was being impersonated by a Skrull. Shenanigans happen, right? But it's essentially that gets us to the reset button of Professor X coming back with the mutants to come stop the Shadow King. So we do have his presence on the island, which makes the the Legion showdown when Shadow King's using Professor X's own son against him, which this is something that will, if you know your Marvel history, um, or if you've even just read to this point, Professor X is the worst dad. There's no worse dad than Professor X. Like, I don't think it's even close. Um, I won't even mention some of the others, but like Professor X is the worst dad. But you do see in this story, at least the attempt for the shadow for one for the other to be like the Shadow King using him has some impact. And then we see in the epilogue in X Factor, like Professor X immediately at risk, at great risk to himself, tries to save David Haller from the coma that the Shadow King leaves him in. Um, As far as your question as to how do they actually defeat the Shadow King? Uh, big Bastro on the Adel plane, <laughs> on the astral plane, r- rather. Yeah, like it's all very comic book, um, psychic shenanigans. Oh yeah, um, Psylocke yeah, uses I mean, it, psychic knives on Polaris to just you know sever the connection. Right, right. Yeah, right. yeah, it's very X Men. Yeah. Um, yeah. I you know so here's my my general takeaway on the Mirror Island saga, uh, which which is fairly short. Like it's the actual crossover itself. Like you said, it's only five issues. There's not that much to it. Um, but if you include like sort of the build, if you kind of consider it like a Shadow King saga, it's actually mm. fairly long running, I would say. Um, I, it's not anyone's best work, but it also to me is a lot more interesting on a reread, especially as I've been reading along with all of the X-verse that goes along with it. Like it's a lot more interesting having done that, I thought. Uh, it's also probably somewhere between 98 and 124,000% more interesting if you're familiar with where X-Men are at in 2021. Stop subtweeting me. This is all just Dave trying to take little jabs at me because I'm not... Subtweeting you? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What does that have to do with you? I wasn't even thinking of you. 
Well, I don't believe that. You're, you you're but a mite in my vision. You're taking taking little jabs, <laughs> taking little jabs. Oh, it, it, you know, just in case anyone on this call hasn't read all of it, you don't fully appreciate the depth no, no, no. And so nuance. the jab, the jab at you would be you lack context, you ignoramus. The the part of it that has nothing to do with you is the contemporary X Men. I, I that I'm not thinking about you when I say that. I'm saying there are connections here that I don't won't mention for fear of spoilers that make gotcha, these gotcha, particular gotcha. events a lot a very interesting. You usually wait until I say like ah well I don't think this really works and you're just like well you don't have all the context and I'm I, I like this so, I, so I agree with you I'm point, more or less point A I never I rarely drop that bomb on you point B you're you're feels... weirdly defensive of that obvious fact. <laughs> like of course of course yeah. right that's what we no, talk about in the club all the it, time it's, it's like yeah of course if you skip things jumping into stories will you will be devoid of some context and then the question is is the story strong enough to hold up on its own i mean i think the the long running and, and highly integrated nature of x-men in particular with a story mm -hmm. like this it makes it harder like you can jump into x-men one to three without anywhere near the same level of context and be fine yeah uh, you know what? I, I actually, like, I, I don't think this is... I mean, if, if you have a passing familiarity with these characters, I actually think this saga goes down fine, especially because it clearly is building to that kind of, like, reset of the classic yeah. group. So, um, yeah. and and so you're, you're right, Professor X is really the core here, and it's a lot of Professor X coming back and being like, I need to reform my team, I need to get my vision going again, you know, like, my dream is not fulfilled, and I'm back on my back on my grind again right um so you know he, he wants to get the team back together to start fulfilling his mutant dream which is something that like has fallen by the wayside from x-men for a while it's been like i mean all the like politics of being a mutant have uh, have been wrapped up in like the government agencies and like the x-factor stuff which has been kind of a big miss so uh kind of getting back to the, like the bread and butters of magneto versus x-men and they're like clashing philosophies is uh I don't know, like, maybe it's a little regressive, but at least for me, like, I appreciate the simplifying at this point, you know, like, we just haven't had a period of, like, simplification for a long time. And yeah, I think, it's, I, think it's, I agree. It's kind of do, yeah. I, I do think I agree, like, and it's, I think that attitude, that, that desire to go back to the Professor X Magneto, a simpler time kind of thing, that can be a very negative Yeah idea yeah. like I, there are there's context to it in terms of where the comics are at where the storylines are at that really matters a lot i think specifically in 1991 16 years of claremont later there the comics are very much ready for that reset button in an in an interesting way with new energy right from new creators yeah taking on that vision based on everything that has changed you know and that's the thing is like you're not literally resetting to Stan and Jack Silver Age X-Men, you're resetting to, okay, what should Professor X's dream look like now in 1991? And then especially, like most importantly, with all the work that Claremont did on Magneto. Because Magneto, as the villain of X-Men 1 through 3, the villain in quotes here, like that quote-unquote regression is so much more interesting, given the nuance and what we've seen that character be through on yeah. his, like, yeah. failed hero's journey, essentially. Um, so I, I think it, there's there's something to be said for, like, I don't it's, love it's the idea of franchises, like, going back to the way things were. I think that's often a very flawed perspective. But with X-Men here, it's actually a pretty good time for it. <laughs> well, because it's, it's a familiar framing, but the actual details and the, like, the, the character building and, the, like, the themes that he's been building have brought it to 
a place where it can be like I'm way more interested in watching Magneto what he's going to go do now even if it is like kind of the same mission overall I'm right. way more interested now because I know that he's a much more like complicated uh, complex like um uh what's the word um conflicted person now right like yeah. he's had this whole history with the new mutants right like he led them he was a stand-in for Xavier like he is he is not just the you know cackling villain that he, you know, he sometimes has been. And he's fought alongside the X-Men. You know, the relationship he, isn't just your mutants and I want to help you. It's we've been we've been in battle together. We've lived in the same house, you know, yeah. like yeah. there's there's a relationship there. That didn't okay, so to be we are, we're skipping ahead because that none of that is in the Moir Island saga. I don't even think he makes an appearance. Um, well, I, so I like, think we I think we can unless there's more Muir Island you really want to dig into. Uh, I really like the last issue here. X-Factor 70. Yeah. Um, is uh i think it's the first peter david issue um it is also i mean i guess we can just like if you want we can transition into the peter david x factor and then jump back to x-men um sure that'd be fine before we before we do that with x factor i do just want to give some some creative shout outs we see the first iteration here of um andy kubert on uncanny Mm -hmm. x-men he's going to be a big name in x-men comics Mm -hmm. does some really good 90s uh big tooth a la a la venom shadow king stuff which I enjoy. And uh, we see Fabian Nicieza step in on scripting duties. Chris Claremont doesn't even finish writing Uncanny during the saga. So, like, that's where we're at yeah. in terms of Claremont, like, getting, you know, kind of pushed out the door. I, I don't know how aggressively, but definitely yeah, it's, it's not. Uh, it's, it's like, not well, he quit, exactly what but it's been, you know, like, it was. You can't fire not. me because I quit, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like, he saw the there. writing on the wall, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. You were going to say about X Factor here. X-Factor 70, uh, well, one, Peter David's writing it, taking over here, but also uh, a Mike Mignola cover, which uh, was super fun. Um, definitely, like, too. yeah, in his more recent style, or, like, his uh, his more modern style, because we've seen other stuff by him that is not, like, I, I guess that, uh, that Wolverine mini looked like his Hellboy style, but this is really looking like, okay, this is Mike Mignola, like, I didn't need to yeah. look it up. Um, yeah, great, great cover. And, uh, and this is, like, Professor X trying to get Legion out of a coma um, in, like, exploring the astral plane, like, uh, in his son's body, and uh, also finding out that his legs were crushed in the battle, meaning that he is back in a wheelchair. Um, which, like, Wolverine says something about, like, it won't last long or something. Um, I, I don't know, or, like, it doesn't meta, matter. Like little meta it, commentary there, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is the, like, it, it ends with saying, like, the five X-Factor team members are back there are 14 x-men now how are we going to deal with all this um so x-factor like issue at 70 leaves x-factor without their team the entire team of x-factor is now back in the x-men and peter david is taking over and he's launching a new x-factor team which is guido aka strongman um polaris and uh, havoc so lorna dane and alex uh, multiple man jamie madrox Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair, and then Valerie Cooper as the, like, PR head of the team, um, because they are now, like, an officially sanctioned government mutant agency, yeah. or not agency, team, and, um... They're, they're basically, they're the replacement for Freedom Force, which ended yeah, very right. badly, um, yeah. but clearly they're all more heroic, typically, than, you know, Blob, Pyro, Avalanche, right, so, and Mystique, right, mm-hmm. so they're going a new direction, uh, clearly a more positive one. <laughs> if you're the government being like, hey, why don't we hire people who 
typically don't destroy things. Uh, so I, the, the, I think big picture, like Peter David, Larry Stroman, they bring yeah. so much needed energy and fresh air to this book, which has, as much as I I love to celebrate what Louis Simonson was able to do as a a creator at Marvel throughout the 80s, I am not the biggest fan of that run. You are obviously the biggest unfan of that run. <laughs> that <laughs> Depends on the era. And the it, energy it, yeah. from David and Stroman is it's an it's an immediate blast of fresh air and I yeah. it's it's very enjoyable comparatively, yeah. I think. Yeah, well, it's part it's it, it's partially that I think it's very good. Like I like Peter David's writing a lot generally and Larry Stroman's art is excellent. Like he does I love, this, like I love Stroman here more than I expected to. I, yeah, I he, didn't he has know this like love this as much as I do. Peter Nagel ish style, you know the the guy who did the cover for the Duran Duran <laughs> albums, the Rio. Um, he does like that kind of style for mm-hmm. specifically a lot of the women, um, and it, it's just like reading an X Men comic that is not incredibly dense. <laughs> it's just not something that I am used to, and yep. it is like immediately like it, it's kind of snappy it's uh you know it takes its time it's kind of like what i've been wanting from x-men for a long time which is like a lot of time spent with the characters outside of big action plots while while like the big you know like evil machinations of the villains are happening in the background we're still just getting a lot of like hangout time with with mutants in their powers which is like everything i want from x-men like i want way more of the soap opera and less of the like superhero Mm. um and peter david's pretty good at it it's it's a weird mix of like it's very sitcom-y um where like he's just throwing a lot of jokes out there and a lot of them fall flat but like a couple of them really land like it's very funny it's very silly um it, and so- it mirrors in a lot of ways what he's been doing on incredible hulk like if you're a fan of that uh, run yeah. you're gonna yeah. be a fan S- of this run. sillier I mean, he doesn't maybe, he I brings think. his ticks to every book that he's on you know i yeah. i think some of the stuff that he is known for like very heavy puns he can overplay his hand often, Sometimes, yeah. um, but at the same time, I think kind of to your point, in a book that doesn't bludgeon you with text, it keeps the pace moving, it's snappy dialogue, even if you don't think it's funny, it's like, it's trying for a breeziness that I do appreciate in terms of creating an atmosphere amongst this team. The dynamics between Quicksilver, Polaris, Guido, Multiple Man, Havoc, all of these characters, it's just kind of instantly more engaging to see a unit that they like they have the sort of snappy camaraderie and like having fun at a workplace that you would want the original five X-Men to have, having like yep. spent their entire, you know, young adult lives together. But instead they're just model and drama all the time, you know? Yeah. And and this team is just like there's there's just a lot of fun personalities on there. Even Quicksilver, who David really plays up how arrogant and, and stubborn he is, that fits because it gives a person, it gives this ex-Avenger, it gives this personality of somebody who's like, I'm way too good for this. And then that bounces off of, you know, the pranks of multiple man, of the just total like goofiness of Guido, of Alex seriousness of trying, you know, and, and Lorna yeah. Dane just being like somewhere in the middle of all of that. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed these more than I quite expected. I don't think, I think David's writing is... If you're the sort of person who like, yeah, like I enjoyed it for a little, but like, man, if I read five of these, it's really gonna grade on me. I hear that. I think now, um, nonetheless, I think Larry Stroman, like you said, like his aesthetic design for these characters, like the way he just draws like crowd scenes and things, like yeah. there's just yeah, like yeah. a there's a a surrealness. There's sort of a caricature to it, and, and it's and all the actual consistent. pacing and layout is really dynamic and keeps like all you're you're always getting scenes from like a new 
layout, right? Like, he does not fall back on just, like, back-and-forth dialogue. Like, sometimes a conversation will be like, here's four panels and the four lines of text as this conversation happens. They'll do a more traditional, you know, like, the whole conversation happens in one panel. Um, Like, the the pacing on it is always engaging, you know, kind of like how McFarlane would work with Peter David, too. So, you know, I'm suspecting Peter David also has a hand in this because... um, You know, I, I think he just knows how to, like, pace out a comic to, to keep it bouncy. Before we go any further, time for an ad break. If you're listening to this podcast, you clearly love comics. You may even love deep, analytical takes on comics. So we think you might like Super Serious 616. Super Serious 616 is a podcast that explores what it would be like to live through the beginning of the modern Marvel age of comics. It is unlike any podcast that you have heard before. Mike and Ed talk about the public events from the early Silver Age of Marvel Comics as if those events were actually happening. As superpowered heroes and villains, gods, and monsters become everyday occurrences, Mike and Ed talk about the ramifications of the changes thrust upon the world. Would the Fantastic Four be welcomed as costumed do-gooders, or would their motives be questioned? Will there be superpowered Cold War with Russia? Will the appearance of Thor in the emergence of gods from ancient myths lead people to re-examine their own religious beliefs? Is Iron Man a good use of Stark Core shareholder capital? If Reed Richards had developed podcast technology in the 1960s Marvel Universe, this would be the show everyone would be listening to. So join Mike and Ed every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Super Serious 616 as they chart the evolution of the Marvel Universe from the ground up as it happens. Alright, back to the show. As far as the jokes go, like, there's a couple, there were two (laughs) jokes in here that made me laugh out loud, like, really hard. Um, One really got me by surprise. I think the issue with his jokes, though, is that it's a little nonstop, and I think there there are moments where he doesn't quite know when to not do it, because, like, it will undercut the seriousness of the moment. Like, characters acting a little out of character because they're making a joke. It's like, you know, someone who, like, can't resist... Uh, you know, cracking wise uh, when it's <laughs> not quite appropriate. Yeah, um, right. But but the jokes that really got me were, um, oh, I can't. So Quicksilver shows up with Lockjaw, and is it Guido who starts talking to Lockjaw? Who who right. is this who starts talking yep. to Lockjaw and thinks that he's just a like a deformed inhuman? And the thing, <laughs> the thing pulled the prank. Like thing, the thing's not even in this, but like it's explained that the thing pulled a prank on him and just told him like Lockjaw's just a you know no a the prank was who, pulled on the thing. Karnak oh, and, and, and Gorgon pulled that prank on the thing, making him think Lockjaw was a, okay. a you know akin to him spiritually that he was just a deformed inhuman. And Ben was like, I get that, and but yeah, Squido heard that Pick, and believed picked that, up on maybe that and from the thing. It, and, and I think Quicksilver yeah. here is like, you can't tell him. Which, which is some good Marvel Universe stuff, for sure. So him just leaning down and, like, talking slow, like, being kind of condescending to what he thinks is, you know, like a <laughs> a deformed and human. That, yeah. that really got me. And then the other <laughs> joke that was great, well, we'll get into it, but Jamie Madrox, uh, one of his copies is assassinated, and uh, they go up to the body, and I think it's Alex, uh, goes to the body and says, my god, it's Jamie. And one of the cops there is like, you know this guy? And he's like, no, I just walk around to random bodies saying, oh, my God, it's Jamie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that joke really got me well. Um, yeah, so, like, I, yeah, I was surprised how much I like it. Part of it is just, like, even when we're not reading Claremont X-Men, I think almost everyone who's writing Mutants right now is working in his form, right? Like, Louise Simonson is still kind of working in the Claremont 
style more or less like the, the you know the, oh, totally. the difference I, the difference yeah, I mean, between them is not that much the, they're and on this the mind is, yeah um and this is just very much not so it's fun to see like hey it's a mutant story that is in a different style you know and it, that's kind of what's happening now in marvel right like it's not even that too it's just like it's so nice to see creators who just don't take everything so seriously like yeah, they're making comic books too, yeah. and they're having fun doing it yeah. and and the story has enough has enough like to it where you know and it's this murder mystery about who's you know jamie madrox and was is one of his dupes the killer or is he the killer and who's the real jamie and, and that whole thing yeah fun, um, there's fun enough to, it to just keep that, it moving yeah. it keeps you interested it's it's mysterious in the right ways but mostly it's like it's a vibe it's a it's a sitcom you can just sit and hang out with and it's not going to make you think too hard um but it's also just going to be kind of a nice hang yeah, I'll, I mean, I also say, like, I don't think it's all just goofs, because, like, I like the multiple man thing of him being, like, he goes to reabsorb the dead multiple man and is shocked to find he can't, and he's genuinely shooken up by this, by, like, did I just, did I create someone who has a consciousness? It just, like, am I creating them to die, you know, and him, like, grappling with that? I think I think that's really interesting. And then another one shows up, and now neither of them know who the real one is. Um, right. I think all that's, that's very good. Um yeah, and, you know, he, he's incorporating a lot of, like, pop culture stuff in a way that feels a little bit more, uh, like, young and of the moment than the stuff we've seen. You know, like, he's referencing Bart Simpson. You know, this is 1991, so Simpson mania is just taken off. But, like, he's making Bart Simpson jokes. He makes a Twin Peaks joke. I don't know if you got that. Uh, yeah, Val, you know, I did. Val actually, Cooper you know, it's, insinuates it's actually, that she's, yeah, Agent Cooper's It's, it's got a sister. little more Stan Lee to it than I think yeah, I ever yeah, would yeah. have. I, I've never made that connection before between Peter David and... And Stan Lee, and not to make an equivalence, you know, obviously, because Stan holds some gravitas here with Marvel Comics fans. But, like, he's got that attitude. He's got that, yes, pop culture integration, more jokes per minute than probably you need. But mm-hmm. it keeps things lively. It keeps things snappy. And, like, I'm actually pretty excited to keep me reading more of this run. I mean, I don't me have yeah. – I've read some of it. I don't have a ton of familiarity. And that's kind of the thing about this whole era is when I did my Marvel Sierra Club the first time, when I set it up, like basically I got to the end of Claremont and I was kind of like, all right, I think I'm pretty good on X-Men. <laughs> like, like I think mostly <laughs> yeah. I got it. So like this era still holds a lot of mystery for me. And there's a lot of stuff I haven't read, which is, which is pretty exciting. Cause you know, that's, that's not true of other books. Um, any other X factor points you want to make? No, I mean, he does a ton of it. That's the other thing I was surprised to find. Cause I, I went in our Slack and was like, Hey, this is fun. <laughs> I really like this. And people were like, Oh, cool. Because he, well, he does, a, he until... does a ton of it. Over the course of like, th- like the full run of Marvel, but not not. Are you talking about like this '90s run? Yeah, because like he does like X-Factor three or four thing? years now, right? He goes until like '94 or something now, and then he comes back in what like 2005. He comes back in another like, five with five or six years, mini, and then he's on yeah. the book forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited to uh, to keep reading this and like yeah, I I hope we read more of this. You know coming up in 92 we just may because i'm definitely cool. gonna be checking out more so all right so the awesome. big gun here though in this episode yep. is of course the best-selling comic of all time x-men number one the the relaunch if you will although it's not actually a relaunch because uncanny x-men keeps going um but we read the first three issues which are the only three that have chris claremont's involvement he is plotting here and writing with jim lee and pencils by Jim Lee. Now, one thing, if you've been reading the X-Men books, you know, kind of up to this point, you see uh, Jim Lee getting plotting credits left and right. Like, like this is the Jim Lee era of X-Men now, where he's not only just the artist, but he's very much defining what these stories are going to be. And Chris Claremont is slowly and increasingly more just like, sometimes he's just credited as scripture, right? And he's kind of mm-hmm. like, which is kind of yeah. like, it's kind of sad, honestly. You know, it's kind of like watching, uh, 
you know, like an athlete who's still thinks they're a superstar, but, but clearly are not, you know, or at least the coaches don't feel that way or whatever. Yeah. Like Claremont's yeah. clearly getting pushed out, but to his credit, to his credit, if Chris Claremont doesn't write these X-Men comics, they are nowhere near as good as they are. I think these three issues are actually extremely strong. I think the fact that you still have Claremont's involvement to give the characterization of Magneto, to give the characterization of a return of Professor X, that makes this story so effective in setting up this new era of X-Men. If you had Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, and even like John Byrne coming back to script or something, who's who comes and works with them in a bit, um, I don't think these comics would have been very good, uh, at least story-wise. But as is, like this is, I would say this is the best marriage of Jim Lee and Chris Claremont really that they ever had um which is funny because it's the end of it you know it's, it's like ironic because they're plotting together builds to this moment of them telling probably their best story i mean really this is an event i mean this is an event comic you know sure. there's three issues yeah. these are huge yeah. first issues oversized it looks better than anything we've read in forever um it's it's huge it's event sized and it's it's very good and basically what it is is x-men one to three it is the official and we've been building to this point. This should not be surprising. But it's the official, you know, Magneto's going full supervillain story. And he joins up with his acolytes, these these followers who want him to carve out, you know, a mutant superiority on Earth. And um, it's basically the story of him kind of giving into that and, and seeing what happens. And also, specifically, him discovering that his DNA has been tampered with. Back when he got turned into a little baby, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that the tampering was done by Martin McTaggart. Do you like this Island. plot point? Because it, it did very little for me. It, it wasn't like I, I really disliked it, thought it was silly or anything. I just kind of was like, I don't I don't know what this adds to Magneto, because it is not definitively like she says she tampers with it. But as far as I remember, it's not like she tampered with it and now he's just a completely different person, and that's the reason why he's so good. It's that he's just concerned. That because it was tampered with, he is a different man now, and he's yeah. like mad that you know, like his his free will has been taken from him. Um, but it just doesn't like it, it didn't add anything that I felt like that strongly about. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's really interesting because it's it's definitely the oldest fashioned thing that they do in this mm-hmm. story because it's a throwback to continuity from Defenders numbers. It's not even part of the Claremont run. It's yeah, a throwback yeah. to continuity from Defender 16 in whatever, 76. And it's like, of all the ways you can move X-Men forward to then throw it into the past with that kind of old-fashioned editor's note and deep continuity pull, it really is a bit of a strange play. I I find it interesting now. I don't think it... it what they're trying to set up is this idea that Magneto's actions, hero or villain have been predetermined, potentially, by Moira McTaggart's manipulations. Right, the Magneto's not actually his own person. And, like, Moira's argument is basically, like, your powers were... Basically, it was like your powers were surging to such a degree that it was changing your your psychology or something to that effect. Where, basically, it was like your powers were making you evil. And she was like, I tried to alter your DNA so that you could be good. And it's sort of making the argument that like Moira could be held accountable for every decision Magneto makes and that freaks him out I think as yeah. it would freak out a but lot of people to me it just felt more like it, it like I felt like I could see the subtext that, or like the meta text of it which was like well we need a, a really strong definitive reason for Magneto to fall out yeah with with Moira yeah. and and Xavier right rather than 
And to attack the expansion, else. right? Because that's what brings him there, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned earlier that you think this is like the, the best marriage of Jim Lee and Chris Claremont. I love the art here. I think Jim Lee is like generally, you know, just doing great stuff. Like I love seeing his X-Men. Like I've, I've really come to appreciate his work. I, I don't know if it's actually a great fit for this story because like Claremont is trying to have, you know, like Magneto go through this th- th- this thing where we're watching him, you know, like we're supposed to be watching him turn quote unquote bad, I guess, or turn against the X-Men and, uh, and like, you know, like, you don't want that to happen, right? You don't want him to, like, throw away all he's built and, like, all these relationships he's built. But Magneto is just drawn, like, the most, like, feral monster, right? Because that's how Jim Lee kind of draws him throughout this. talking about? Like, like he's always got He looks like a Greek god. The pointy teeth and the, like, the The saliva. The dope helmet, the flowing white locks. No, he looks cool, but, like, it... No, I mean, he looks cool, but that's, like, different from, you know, the, the... the like softer Magneto, right? Like he he already looks like the supervillain, and I think like always having it him be in that mode is is not like quite the the right choice for this story. It feels like kind of the wrong choice for like the story that this is trying to tell. It's like too heightened and too like balls to the wall '90s comic. You know, it feels like well, you know, like that the image era, but like kind of a softer story to go with it. So audible <laughs> head nod in disagreement. Okay, that's fair. I mean, I, I really like the art. Like, I, I think the art is very good. Like, Jim Lee's art works really well, and I think at this point he's just totally, like, got master, mastery of the page and the layout and the pacing of stuff. Like, all works and really shou- well. And shouts to Scott Williams for inking him so effectively mm, here. Yeah. You got Joe oh, Rosas yeah. on colors. I mean, <clears throat> the colors of the X-Men's new costumes and whatnot, you know, we get their official the new costumes. 90s yeah. looks here. Looks great. Looks amazing. Yeah. I love it. Storm Storm's costume, so good. Uh, and yeah, I, I always talk about Jim Lee as like the the inker's worst nightmare because if you ever see his pencils, like sometimes just like the raw pencils that he does, it's just like ha- like how do you even discern the image out of like you have you need the inking to be able to like bring the width to these lines in order to like discern what's happening because he puts so much detail in there. Um, and he's he's so extremely he's, complimentary of Scott Williams, the inker, in interviews. Yeah, like, yeah oh, he definitely great. credits him with doing a. a you know, a lion's share of work and bringing these things to life. Cause yeah, to your, he absolutely has to. Um, I, I think it's, I, I, I mean, I guess if you're saying it's not the highlight of their marriage together, I'd be interested in hearing what you think was more effective. I mean, I think these three issues, they set the era, they set the stage. They're also really hard for X-Men to live up to from mm-hmm. this point forward, frankly. Um, I, I love the way Lee draws Magneto. Like I, I don't think Magneto has looked this cool since Kirby was doing him. Um, so he does look I, cool. Yeah, he look he looks very cool. That's like that's it's not my point. But he's also calm and collected cool. when he needs to be. Like he's also yeah. He's yeah. now just he's got a physicality and like like Magneto's hot now. I don't know that Magneto was hot before, but like no, he's definitely like coming like out of the Rogue and, and sexy his Savage Land stories, grandpa. and now yeah. these like he's the ripped Silver Fox Magneto. Oh yeah, and yeah, he yeah. wasn't always that for sure when he had the kind of pseudo Wolverine spikes. Um, I, I think big picture like this. Like you said, it sets up the dichotomy of Professor X wanting to return to his dream, of Magneto saying, no, that dream can never win. You know, mutants, we have to use violence. We we have to be superior. He sets up his asteroid up in space, so asteroid M. His acolytes, they, led by Fabian Cortez, we get the introduction of that character here, who, you know, he can power up Magneto, and in doing so, he kind of, you know, manipulates Magneto to his own whims. Um, but they go down to Genosha, and they're like, yeah, we're going to kill these Genosian swine. There's a lot... 
I think politically, <laughs> which is not what this comic is interested in, but because it's post-extinction agenda and because it's trying to delineate like the X-Men as the the full Xavier's dream um, integration with humanity versus Magneto's, you know, use of force, you know, and, and really sort of leaning into, and Chris Claremont has said this in interviews, like the Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King debate, which gets overused to describe yeah, Professor X yeah, and yeah. Magneto. You know, we talked about this in the 60s when the characters get introduced as like, <clears throat> is it a metaphor for the for those two individuals? And in the 60s, it's not. When you get closer to 91, it gets closer to that, in Chris Claremont's mind at least, and again, like this is based on yeah. what we talked about in interviews, because of the nuance he put into Magneto as a character, where it's not just this night and day good versus evil thing, um, which isn't what it should be. No, it, and, it, but, I mean, that, that's, that's a reductive comparison, but there definitely is, like... That you, you can draw the parallels here, like I, to because I have some, seen some people be like, you know, don't say that they're you know indicative of MLK and and Malcolm X because that's you know insulting and reductive, and it's like, well, it is here a little bit, right? It's like, often wrong. I, here, it's intentional in whether it works or not. It's yeah, right. You you can you can definitely say that like it it doesn't work well. Yeah, <laughs> but like but the, it, but he, the acolytes they go to Genosha, and this is actually without Magneto's directive at first, and they're they're just blowing stuff up, and you what you yeah. get is you get the X-Men sort of in defense of the Genosians, who, again, are, like, <laughs> like systemically oppressing mutants is their whole deal. And it's I, I, it's not really what this comic is interested in exploring, but for me, it is that one of those things where it's, like, Beast is like, oh, we can't, you know, we can't hurt the Genosian, uh, you know, police. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, why not? Um, th- yeah. That stuff, you know, I think is, is maybe a little harder to swallow today. But it's definitely, like, that is... That is the dichotomy that I think a lot of X-Men fans, even today, even 30 years later, are like, it's not an X-Men story unless the X-Men are fighting for this specific integration of humanity and mutants in this specific way where they will protect absolutely everyone. And and what I read these issues and think is, oh, yeah, Magneto was right. <laughs> like, like oh, more yeah, often than sure. not, I'm yeah, like, yeah. oh, yeah, Magneto was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it, that's true. And, you know, the Acolytes are like kind of taking advantage of him here right and like almost using him for their more like extreme less thoughtful ends which is uh you know something that happens um yeah yeah, yeah, i I think i think all that is like pretty interesting and it does set up like mag you know magneto again as like being someone that is going to be an antagonist for the x-men if not like a super villain right like that is that is not the role he's not going to be like out here um you know whatever just arbitrarily blowing stuff up and killing humans like he is mm-hmm. you know more thoughtful than that but um but he is like his his thing now is like creating sanctuaries for mutant kind yeah <clears throat> and that kind of becomes his defining ethos through the 90s is basically like what does that look like and first it looks like asteroid m um and it's him basically saying like i'm gonna i'm going to be the protector of mutant kind i'm not gonna let other mutants get hurt again the way i saw my people get hurt in auschwitz Right, like that's literal thinking that we see here yeah. from that character, and in that regard, it's it's very easy to not relate. It's very easy to uh, empathize with what he's trying to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think you know you get, and that's the thing too. We saw this in like you know Disney Plus Falcon Winter Soldier. Honestly, this conversation came up a lot, but it's like Magneto's whole deal here. If you take, it's like they force in an issue too. Like, oh, we better have the acolytes go blow some stuff up and kill some innocent people because otherwise he's just right. And it's yeah, like, sure. you know, it's like we better have them do something that we we can't endorse because otherwise he's just right. 
And uh, it, it is kind of unfortunate that that's the way these stories kind of always play Except out. that Magneto is like, they, they at least, like, he's delineating between the Acolytes and, the Mag- and Magneto by the end of this. Where Magneto, you know, like, eventually is, you know, like, seeing seeing that he is, like, wrong to put, put his trust in them, right? Yeah, yeah. Although, um, I mean, specifically one of them is, like... That he's not going to have Acolytes going forward, you know, they're, they're yeah, going to play sure. a role Yeah, sure, maybe it's just the, the, the specific one who's leeching his powers or, like, making Yeah, Fabian Cortez is, uh, yeah, right. is a creep and a schemer. And uh, will be a, will be a thorn. I do I do really like the um, throwback to like like the same way John Byrne and She Hulk. I don't think we even talked about this, but like the John Byrne She Hulk issues were echoing. I think the original like a lot of the original Hulk issues, sure. uh, and yeah. and like original Fast Fantastic Four, like in really clear you know uh, lines drawn. This one is trying to do some of the same stuff. Like Magneto goes and steals some nuclear missiles, just like in X Men number yeah. one back in 1963. So that you know, little winks at that while being done in a much more you know like complicated way. Um, yeah, and I I do credit Claremont and Lee too for you know the the arc of Magneto has been since Trial of Magneto, which again throws way back in what is it 85's Uncanny X Men 200. It's yeah. like the arc of him is like, okay, now he's in the school and, and Xavier gives him a chance at redemption and he's leading the new mutants. And it's like, it's not like this character hasn't been on a decline f- since like 1988. You know what I mean? Like 91s, it's not like they made some hard turn. So I give a lot yeah. of credit, I guess more to Claremont even than Lee, where it's like the stories have been building us back to this point for a while. And that's why when I talk about the reset button being pushed fairly effectively here it's because it's not a hard sudden turn if you've been reading these stories you know no, like, no it makes sense not. yeah yeah no I, I mean i agree um i think we'd uh we should at least mention it's like the number one best-selling comic of all time i think still to this day eight million copies sold uh, yeah it's pretty amazing just so while this one i mean sold it, with uh this one sold with i think it was five different covers yeah. And it's like yeah, if you yeah. put them all together, you get that really cool Jim Lee spread of of Magneto. That spread and, is and the so like. cool. I've got, uh, it's I've got the Psych and Wolverine one up on my wall behind me. Cool. Um, so and it's like and this is people talk a lot about you know this era sort of starts some of the worst practices in comics retail. Yeah. Uh, so oh, yeah. like X Force number one, which you talked about previously, that sold with I think five different trading cards. So it was like it was polybagged mm-hmm. and then it had different trading cards. So you had to basically it was like, well, you have to buy five issues if you want to get the full set. And that's kind of what X Men is playing because it was here. all Wizard Magazine driving all the like the speculation market of like, listen, buy it, you know, box it, stash it away, and then you'll put your kids through college when you, you sell this. Like, and that's the, same the thing way that. That's the thing that you get a lot of if you watch that Image Revolution documentary that one of our patrons has recommended a bunch. Um, And I watched some of on Amazon. But it is, it's genuinely remarkable, like the lines out the door and the excitement for these creators and for these comics. Given what, like on free comic book day, I see lines out the door at a comic shop. Oh, the only other time anything's even come close to that was like when House of X and Powers of Ten was coming out. Well, okay, you you want some comparison? How many comics did Marvel sell? like in a month february 2020 oh i I mean yeah no i know that's not even close i mean a a good like a a book selling a hundred thousand issues right now is like pretty good (laughs) 2.6 million issues total in a month right like this sold 8 million on its own right so just (laughs) this one issue alone sold almost four times as much as marvel now sells an entire month no it's Um, remarkable it was also a dollar it was also sold sure yeah somewhat cheap uh, yeah. I think I mean and it is hard to getting. parse you know like I, I'm sure a lot of that like you said is, is 
because of the like the hyped up investor market in it, but also just because X Men is the biggest thing in the world right at the time in comics. Um, it's not shocking given yeah. what we saw with McFarlane Spider Man, and then you see Liefeld's X Force, and it's like if those books are huge sellers, yeah, the best selling franchise already probably gonna do all right, and it yeah. did. So uh, yeah, Claremont is gone. This is the end of uh, last thing we're Fiend. reading with Claremont for a yeah, long Yeah, he gets time. a he gets a pretty lame send off in this yeah, issue, yeah. which I don't I don't know exactly what that should look like. Um, a little more than this, but yeah. So this is the end of the era. Um, it's it's a remarkable run. Uh, it really is. It is in, yeah, in both wild. duration and the amount of stuff Fif- that he put into it that is still just... defines and and the fact like X Men became the biggest thing at Marvel under his watch. It's still that now. He defined so much of what matters, essentially, in that franchise. I mean, it's it, we could do it. We could do this game maybe on a variant or something. But like, kind of interesting to consider. Not even just in Marvel, but like, who are creators who like came in and took something that wasn't theirs and transformed it in such a way that it like impacted comics, like impacted the comics landscape in the way that Claremont does with X Men. I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot that's going to I mean, come it's up Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, and Steve Ditko, right? Like, the three of them creating Marvel. But that's not them. It, but that's that's what I'm saying, though, is Claremont took their work. They yeah. didn't take anyone's work. They created their, their own new thing, right? So that's kind yeah. of a, a different thing to me than what Claremont's doing, which is inheriting a work-for-hire thing to begin with, right? So I'm thinking comparisons would be like Alan Moore and Swamp Thing. Sure. Something like yeah. that, right? So that that's a thing that's already established, I, already has a presence. I just, I guess I'm, I'm just saying in terms of, like, impact on the, Mar- like, building an entire universe within the Marvel Universe that is, I put out that poll a while ago, you know, it's an informal Twitter poll, but, like, it was about even the people, the amount of people who were like, I would rather just read X-Men comics than the rest of the Marvel Universe versus people who are like, I would rather read everything else Marvel does than X-Men. Right. Right? Like, right. X-Men alone is almost like a secret you know the, the the secret big third <laughs> of the big two right it's like yeah there's a ton of people who are just like yeah i don't i don't read spider-man or the avengers or whatever's going on there like i read x-men comics right i read mutant comics um and that's 100 percent claremont and i mean like 185 issues of just x-men right not to mention like new mutants and wolverine and uh um, Excalibur, right? All the other, like, all the mini series, like... Little odds and ends here or there, yeah. Totally, totally remarkable. Recently. Like, just, yeah. <clears throat> no, it's, it's really stuff, remarkable. Yeah. I, I don't... It's hard to imagine anyone doing anything for that period of time again. Yeah, I mean, 16 years? Who, who's who been on a book for 16 years in a row? Like, you know, like, I, very, very few. I mean, uh, Brian Michael Bendis and Ultimate Spider-Man was on there for, like, eight years, and that's a considered a very remarkable run that's like half mm-hmm. the run mm-hmm. so yeah I, i'd be actually curious to look up uh you know what the um like records are for people like longest superhero runs it's got to be up there i'm sure he's in the top three probably if not number one with this one so it is amazing so uh yeah, yeah. so that the good stuff from claremont good stuff from lee we're going to follow of course where the x-men are going from here into the 90s but for now oh yeah well i wanted to ask x-men number th- four who writes that uh, so it's, it's plotted by Jim Lee from from here for a minute, and I think we have John Byrne scripting coming in pretty soon. If not okay. four, then then shortly. Okay, yeah, because I see on our list as of right now. So this is you know always a work in progress by you, but X Men four through eight are in the bonus round. Didn't actually make the final cut. 
So uh, I'm not. Well, I'm sure. you are saying that a little preemptively, my boy. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's. I guess we can wait and see. Um, yeah. Oh, the other thing I just want to mention: we're uh, we're only a year away from the X Men TV series premiering, 1992. Yeah. Uh, that's premiering. I think I'm going to watch it. I've never watched it before. Um, I'm going to give Maybe it a shot it. and try to uh, kind of watch it concurrently with you know uh, with what we're reading in the show. Because um, I mean, one of the weird things about that show is it's like adapting stories that are happening like that year in x-men comics right like they they go back and do the phoenix saga and they do you know a lot of the other stuff they're doing but like a lot of the stories in there i know are like 1993 here's an x-men arc 1994 that arc is in the x-men comic or the x-men series yeah yeah there might be a little bit of that no i'd be be interested in hearing your take on that yeah um all right i guess that's gonna do it we're gonna come back for one more episode in 1991 we've got some the end of the anacentes daredevil run which i'm very excited to dip back into that read some more of that some more Dwayne mcduffie deathlock which again excited to read more of Dwayne mcduffie's work um danny fingeroth his avengers death trap so have we read actually we interviewed him but did we read any fingeroth before maybe some i did uh, no i I read some i read some dazzler uh, but I don't think we did for the club. <laughs> that that would explain why all of your questions were about Dazzler. <laughs> <laughs> he loved he loved that. He was like, no one asked me about Dazzler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, and then finally a Patreon edition Marvel Superheroes number eight, which is the first appearance of Squirrel Girl. <laughs> Heck, yeah. <laughs> Heck yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get into it then. But pretty pretty funny. Um, all right. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, I'm Zach. You can find me on social media at my bros here. He's Dave. You can find him over at Comic Book Herald. Uh, music this week is by Disasterpiece. That's D I S A S T E R P E A C E. Is that right, or is it the other way? I, I actually don't know how to. Um, and uh, I'm taking. Are you Dave's pausing job to look time. up Disasterpiece? Are you serious? I couldn't remember if I. This I is the most shameful thing you've ever done. No, I spelled it right. I spelled it right. Times in your face. Yeah. Well, I, I, at this point, I tuned this part out. Uh, but see, because I took over your role this time, I was like, I'm just gonna do yeah, all and the you, end, and you bombed. Not nah, well. C- okay, let's not throw around accusations. They're throwing tomatoes at you on the stage. You couldn't even spell disaster piece. Okay, I did really well until then, but I do feel <laughs> I do feel really awkward saying "see you next year first. It's really uncomfortable. But why don't you I'll, try it? Because I'll yeah, I'll see if I can do your part. Okay, let me say uh, music. This this uh, was provided by Disaster Piece. Thank you all for listening. See you next year. See you next year, guys. <laughs>